Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisee and the teachers of the laws muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord God, we give you thanks and praise for the privilege of gathering under your word. We pray that it would shape our hearts so that we might be more like you, more clearly the image of you in whose image we are made. We pray that you would bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds, that they would be acceptable in your sight. We pray in the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I don't know how many times I've heard or read the parable of the lost sheep. Uh, I've been hanging around the church pretty much my whole life, with the exception of one very short-lived and ultimately unsuccessful attempt at rebellion. I was uh, in seminary in utero, so, you know, I think I've probably uh, heard this a lot. (laughs) Uh, It's one of the most beloved parables, and throughout the history of the church, it's been one of the most beloved images. That Jesus as the good shepherd is how the early church tended to depict him in their art. Uh, The cross was unquestionably important uh, for a Christian imagination. Our earliest letters, the writings of Paul, uh, all focus on the death and resurrection of Jesus. But we didn't really start putting crosses in places, or or crucifixes for that matter, until people couldn't really remember uh, the horror of crucifixion. Uh, It really is sort of the equivalent of having an electric chair or a guillotine uh, prominently displayed. Now, the cross was actually used uh, uh, by detractors of Christianity. Uh, There was a piece of first century Roman graffiti that was found that shows Jesus as a man with a donkey head 
being worshipped by his silly followers. Like it was inconceivable that someone who'd been executed by the state could be worthy of devotion. You know, the cross, as St. Paul puts it, has always been a stumbling block to some and foolishness to others. And so the early church tended towards other images, and based on the art that remains, uh, they seem to especially like Jesus the Good Shepherd. And I imagine it must have been a really evocative uh, kind of image for agrarian folks. You know, there's clearly something about the earthiness, the, the protectiveness, the diligence, and the concern of shepherds that, that piqued the early church's imagination for what it meant to be caught up with Jesus, to be members of his flock. You know, all four Gospels and several of the letters of the New Testament make use of this image. And of course, for those of us whose primary experience of sheep involves a side of mint jelly or scratchy socks, uh, this may not resonate as much, but I think if we lean into it, it's, it's pretty marvelous. And so we're going to do that today, but I want to begin by pointing out something that I had never really noticed before. Uh, even though I've probably read it hundreds uh, of times, I, I'd never, never picked up this little detail. Uh, it's easily overlooked, but I think it's important, at least for, for kind of getting the energy of the story that Luke tells. And the thing I noticed this time around is that all, all of the tax collectors and sinners were coming near Jesus to listen to him. All of them. <laughs> Now, this may seem like kind of an insignificant detail. I, I could be making more of it than Luke intended, but Luke doesn't, isn't careless with his words. And he doesn't say some of the tax collectors and sinners, or, or the tax collectors and sinners, or a few of the local riffraff. He says all of them. And, you know, just in case this was kind of a weird translation choice from Greek into English, I, I, I checked, and my Greek isn't very good, but I know the word for all, and it's there. All of the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. There's something about Jesus that is absolutely magnetic to nobody's and ne'er-do-wells. Something about his character, about the way he meets them, about the way he shows up among them. Something about what he's saying that they want to listen to him. They want to come near and listen to him. And I think it's important to, to say from the outset that it's not because he affirmed every last detail of their lives. You know, he's not an I'm okay, you're okay sort of motivational speaker. The parable he's about to tell is all about repentance, changing the way we live and move and have our being in the world, going a new direction, and not one we would necessarily choose for ourselves. This is not about manifesting another possibility for ourselves. This is about getting in line with the will and way of the God of all things. Now, the, the angels don't rejoice when the tax collector figures out a way to justify ripping off his neighbors. Heaven doesn't dance when we shrug our shoulders at sin. Jesus is calling the people, calling us to repentance. He's reminding us of the character of God. And as we've heard from the prophets over the last few weeks, God and sin don't go together. Whatever is contrary to righteousness... A right relationship with God, our true selves, each other, and creation. Whatever's contrary to that has to be dealt with. God is not indifferent to the mess of our lives or of this world. And that's good news. Jesus is among these people not just because their parties are more fun, which is probably true, but because he wants them to live differently 
in the world. And they want to hear it. <laughs> All of them. And I think the reason is this, because it seems unlikely to me. You tell someone they have to change. Nobody, people don't tend to like it. But these, all of them want to hear this message. And I think the reason is this. His goal is not to point out how wrong they are, what sinful, degenerate, unrighteous failures they are, how wildly short of God's glory they have fallen, all of which might be absolutely true. If you get known as the local sinner, you might not be making good choices in your life. But that's not what Jesus is first of all worried about. His concern isn't to point out their failures, but to reveal who and how God is, how vastly more God's goodness and grace is than our shortcomings. Now, this parable is not about good sheep and bad sheep, though we might get there eventually, but it's not, first of all, about the sheep at all. It's about the, the shepherd. It's about who and how God is with and for this world. You know, when Jesus asks, which one of you, if you had a hundred sheep and one delinquent sheep wanders off, doesn't leave the 99 and go find the one? The right answer is none of us. None of us would do that. This would be foolish. What kind of a reckless shepherd would put the 99 at risk to go after this one sheep? You know, 99 out of 100 is pretty good. I bet you that's an above average week for shepherding. But not by God's metrics. This shepherd wants the whole flock. Every last sheep. All of them. And so he sets off to find the one that's wandered off. And the important thing about this parable, what reveals God's heart, is who the active agent is, right? The sheep doesn't manage to find its way back. And I don't want to suggest that there isn't a place for us to realize that we have stuff to repent of. Of course there is. I don't want to suggest that we have no role to play in the drama of salvation. Of course we do. But the point for now is that the initiator is not the sheep, it's the shepherd. And if we really let that work on our hearts, I think it's hard to overstate how incredible it is, how unlikely it seems, what perfect grace. Because it's entirely contrary to our expectations. It seems to have been then, it certainly is now. right? Jesus seems to recognize in the grumbling of the these particular scribes and Pharisees, see, not all the scribes and Pharisees, but these ones who were keeping an eye on him, this sense that they feel that they are earning their way towards God somehow, that, that what God is primarily concerned with is good behavior and excellent discipline and religious and spiritual progress. Now, our, our context is quite different, obviously, than first century Jerusalem, uh, but I'm not sure this sentiment is. Now, I know that not all of us are on social media, so you might have to take my word for this. But the voices that seem to be getting the most attention in pop culture are saying oddly similar things, maybe perhaps parallel things, to what the scribes and Pharisees are grumbling about. I mean, it's peppier. It's usually said with a smile, not a sneer, but uh, it's similar. I, I read this from one uh, influencer this week. Uh, it, they put up on Instagram, uh, when you truly want something and go after it without limiting yourself, with disbelief, the universe will make it happen. <laughs> That's a charming idea, isn't it? <laughs> and of course we should live with passion and purpose, don't get me wrong. But if you flip this around, like a little bit of critical thought about this, uh, the implication is that if you don't have everything you ever wanted, there's something deficient in you. 
right? You aren't getting after it hard enough. You're limiting yourself with disbelief. The universe, whatever that means, is not pleased with you. Now, with that kind of background noise, and it's, this is not a one-off, this is what we're, we're hearing all the time, it's no wonder that our culture is obsessed with competition and racked with anxiety. Because it's exhausting trying to make ourselves good and worthy, creating ourselves in whatever arbitrary image those around us tell us is important or chasing after some goal that's off in the distance because there's always another goal off in the distance. Like if that's the expectation that we'll finally get what we deserve and work for and earn, and I don't believe any of us can manage to avoid that expectation, then it's easy to get bound and weighed down by our failures overwhelmed by the obvious distance between what we want, what God wants, and what we are, profoundly anxious that we may never be worthy. And then it's even easier to look at those who are lagging further behind with disdain, to grumble about those whose efforts seem to be mostly self-limiting beliefs, to sneer at those who fail to live up to whatever standard of success we think is worthy. It's easy to find ourselves suddenly among the grumblers and the scoffers. You know, regardless of the cultural expectations that we find ourselves embroiled in, I think uh, St. Augustine was right <laughs> when he said a long time ago, you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Now, whether in first century Palestine or 21st century Vancouver, it's easy to get distracted and seduced by some distant, often actually unreachable goal, whether that's ritual, religious purity, or whatever the universe has on offer today, or something else altogether. A happy family, the perfect job, the best grades, a decent retirement fund some goal, the pursuit of which in the end actually ends up taking us further away from what we truly long for, what we truly need, the rest our hearts yearn for. And at some point, we're as likely to look around and find out that we've wandered into the wilderness alone. And sometimes I think the only real difference between tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees and scribes is that the tax collectors and sinners know they're lost. And I think that's the best space to hear this parable, frankly. And my guess is that we've all got a little both in us, a little scribe and a little sinner. But it's in those spaces where we are aware of our lack, of our failures and our shortcomings, our sin, that we really need this word to be true. Right? We need it to be true that we don't go frantically searching for God, chasing after God, striving after God, but God is coming after us. I know I just spent several minutes talking about us, but let me come back to my point. <laughs> this is not, first of all, about us. It's about God, who and how God is with and for us. In Jesus, God shows himself to be the one who comes after us without any consideration of whether we deserve it or not. As St. Paul puts it, while we were still sinners, God in Christ gave up everything for us. And that may be kind of insulting to those of us who think we have it all together, but for those of us who, who know that we don't, which I'm guessing is just about everybody, 
It's astonishingly good news. I mean, the fact is, if we have to catch up to God, we're hooped. (laughs) But we don't have to chase God down because God is looking for us. And God is determined to find us, to get us even in the darkest valley, to scoop us up and carry us home. I mean, it's no wonder that the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. The psychiatrist Kurt Thompson says that we all come out of the womb looking for someone looking for us. (laughs) We come out of the womb looking for someone looking for us. We have this innate need to be seen, known, loved, cared for that goes beyond the basic necessities of life. I have to imagine when Jesus sat at the table with these folks he wasn't supposed to want anything to do with, that they experienced maybe for the first time ever, someone genuinely looking for them. Not what he could get from them, but just them, fearfully and wonderfully made, beautiful children of God. And when Jesus welcomes us as we are, when he looks at us and sees us, truly sees us as no one else can in all the mess and wonder of our lives, and when we receive that welcome, when we return that gaze, not for what we can get from him, but just for him, it roots us in the life that we're made for. It changes the way we see the world, ourselves, our our neighbors, everything. If Jesus is really the one who never leaves the one behind, then we start to know how precious we are, how precious they are, how precious every blessed thing is. And then we get to enter into the territory of true repentance. That is not simply acknowledging our shortcomings and sin, but learning to walk in something truer. The extraordinary height and depth and length and width of God's love for us, for us, as we are, and as we will be. God's love for us in Christ. I've been kind of obsessed with a contemporary Christian worship song recently, which is a bit weird for me. That's not my go-to genre. I find a lot of it insufferable. Um, But there's a song called So Will I. Uh, I sent it out in an email today. If if you're not on our list and you want a link, let me know. But I, uh, I think it does a kind of unusually good job. It's, there's something very kind of psalm, psalm-like about it, uh, of exploring the vastness of God's goodness and love. And, and over the course of the song, the singer, who, which is meant to be us, of course, uh, ha- having reflected on the marvels of God's goodness and love, realizes that that really does include every blessed thing. Nothing and no one is left out. And there's a line towards the end of the song that says, if you gave your life to love them, so will I. If you gave your life to love them, so will I. I think that's repentance in a nutshell. Trading all of our metrics, all of our judgments, all of our fears, even all of our successes and victories for the sake of the incomparably beautiful truth that God loves this world and every last molecule in it, with a love that will chase us even into the grave, just to have us, just to bring us home. Repentance is trading everything for that truth, then living out of it and nothing less. That's the sort of turn that makes heaven roar with joy. And may it be so. Amen.